Welcome back to another episode of the Born Again Again podcast. Today's Born Again Again story is an interview with a lovely man named David, who grew up in the Southern Church of Christ and left the faith later in life. During this interview, we talk about what it was like growing up in a Southern fundamentalist church, about having doubts as a kid but not really knowing how or who to express them to, about a conversation that he had with a co-worker that completely changed his life, and about how common sense has to be a higher moral standard than any religious book. We wrap things up by discussing the difficulties in dealing with bitterness on the other side. As always, I hope you enjoy. All right. Well, thanks for coming on the show, David. I'm really happy that you're willing to talk to me today. Well, thank you. I'm excited to be here and excited to talk about things. Yeah, definitely. Um, So like I've been doing with the last couple, I would love if we could kind of start with where you're at now in terms of your Christian beliefs, um, where you're living, who you are, just kind of a brief introduction of who David is at this moment in time. Okay. Well, um, I'm 49 years old and uh, I identify, I would say now as an ex-Christian, probably first of all, uh, and I first heard that term really with your podcast. And oh, nice. Uh, that's probably one of the, the strongest identifying factors I have. And then I'm, uh, I would say an agnostic atheist, I think like a lot of people identify and that uh, I don't make a claim that there is no God, but mm. I have not seen enough evidence to convince me that there is. And so I don't really make a claim on the presence of a supreme being or creator. And I guess that uh, that puts me in a bit in the agnostic category of whether we can know that or not. So uh, sure. I try not to make too much of a claim, but from what I've seen, if there is some kind of supreme being, it doesn't really care too much about what's going on down here. <laughs> sure. Seems like a pretty reasonable place to stand. I think I'm with you in that. <laughs> so yeah. you obviously haven't been that way your whole life. Um, tell me a little bit about your Christian background and your upbringing. Where did it start for you? When did you start calling yourself a Christian? Well, I mean, I was born into a, a very fundamentalist Christian family. And uh, so I, I grew up uh, in the Church of Christ, which mm-hmm. is uh, fairly well known in the Southeast, especially in the area I am in Alabama, Tennessee, uh, Georgia, Mississippi, there's a lot. And I think as you spread out from there, there's not so much. So just a d- brief description of the Church of Christ. Yeah, It's, um, it's very much a non-centralized fundamentalist church that uh, in general takes the Bible literally and uh, is organized on a congregational level. And so there's no central organization. There are no central figures. There's no central uh, statement. It's not like a Southern Baptist convention or anything. Mm-hmm. And so I was born into that uh, fundamentalist culture with uh, both my parents uh, having strong lineages in the Church of Christ. And so my parents, my grandparents on both sides, uh, their cousins, brothers, sisters, Uh, If you go vertically or horizontally in my family, you're going to find Church of Christ people. And that's not to say that there haven't been one or two, you know, cousins that may not go to church every Sunday morning, Sunday night. (laughs) But everyone has those cousins. There's always a couple of cousins that like don't fight quite fit into the mold. (laughs) I have have a first cousin that's been divorced, and I don't think that he's a real strong Church of Christ churchgoer. But uh, I think. I think that it's it's safe to say that it's it's really a f- familial heritage kind of thing. My my grandfather was uh, the preacher 
in the mm. church that I grew up in, which was a congregation of about 250, sometimes up to 300 people. And I grew up sitting on the uh, second row of a fairly large church, seeing my grandfather preach. Wow. And uh, I mean, it's still really special to think about because to me in that church, he was kind of the the essence of goodness to me. Just he yeah. was my grandfather. So of course I was biased and saw him a certain way. And then I heard him preach and all of my family being that way. Uh, that's, that's where really my strong uh, Church of Christ fundamentalist background comes from. Wow. All right. And so is that something that you, you grew up in? Is that something you kind of continued on through your life as you grew up as well? I did. Um, there wasn't really much of a choice, you know, until you yeah. worked out on your own a little bit. And, uh, you know, once you move away to college, it's not like I ever uh, said I didn't want to go when my parents forced me. I mean, that wasn't even really an issue. That was not something mm-hmm. that was going to happen. You know, my <laughs> I was so deep into it with uh, with the familial roots. I just that wasn't a possibility. I would have had to have been a really strong, really bold person to do that. So in the Church of Christ, I guess what happens is that you have to willfully choose uh, to become a follower of Christ. And it's uh, through baptism and full immersion in water in a church of Christ. Okay. It's not just saying a prayer or yeah. accepting Jesus as your personal savior. Uh, ch- the church of Christ is a very uh, legalistic version of Christianity. And especially the sect that I went in, that I was in, which is uh, known as a non-cooperative or non-institutional churches of Christ, which is a very small sect even of the churches of Christ. But okay. in all of those, um, about the age of puberty, sometime around there, sometimes younger, sometimes a little bit past, most people to continue on in the Church of Christ will uh, go forward uh, at an invitation song, or I guess you refer to it as an altar call at some yeah. church, where you go forward and you uh, confess in front of everybody that you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that He died for your sins, and then they uh, they always have a baptismal somewhere in the church building that mm-hmm. you, uh, you go up into with a preacher or whoever you church to choose to baptize you. And uh, that's kind of your uh, willful claim that you are uh, one of Christ's followers. And so I did that at about yeah. um, 13 years old. And so okay. that of my real memories of when I really decided to accept it, um, that was about the age I did. It was either 12 or 13. Okay. So I was born in 1971. And so it would have been about 83 or 84 or so. And if you like, I could talk about that some because they're, you know, looking back on things now, I can, I can remember some thoughts I had. And there's one particular that haunts me there. Do you want me to talk about? Yeah, that? I'd love to. Yeah, I'd love to hear about it. So having grown up around it, I didn't really question a lot. And you don't really question a lot, you know, up through your 12th or 13th yeah. birthday, right? That's, right. that's right. normal. Uh, but about that time, since since you do have to make quite a commitment in that situation to go up in front of a couple hundred people and then you get baptized in front of them and it's kind of an emotional thing. Sure. Uh, I was trying to figure it out. And just my nature is that I'm, I'm an engineer. Uh, mm-hmm. And then I became a doctor later in life when I went back to medical school. And my nature is uh, to want to know why. Mm-hmm. Even now I look up. Uh, root words to see why this word is said this certain way and what language it's from okay. and what it really means. And and part of that's medical training, going back to Latin and understand what things mean. But also my engineering background, I like to know how things work. I'll take them apart and put them back together sometimes. You know, mm-hmm. I, I'm very much an engineering type personality. And and I there was one thing that I really couldn't figure out about the Christian system 
And I remember having this thought when I was 12 and I could not figure out why the death of one person or God slash person a long time ago that I never really knew affected my relationship with another person that apparently had the ability to forgive or accept or reject me regardless of what Hmm. that third party did. And, you know, I don't know that I could have expressed it in those kind of words back then, but I really couldn't figure out why in the world that system was in place. It made no sense to me because I can deal with a simple engineering reason as to why, or a simple thing like a purchase where you give money and you get something back for it, or even a personal relationship where you say, I'm sorry, I did that. You know, I want to be on good terms with you again. And that person says, I accept and, and understand how you feel, but to, to have this impersonal third party sacrifice that was supposed to be such a great thing to make me acceptable to this other being that I never really have inner interaction with, I could not figure it out. And uh, I couldn't, I couldn't really chase it. It's not like we had, you know, access to the internet in 1983. I couldn't go, you know, read Sam Harris or Richard Dawkins or (laughs) sure. I I had no sources. You're on your own. Yeah. In North Alabama at the time. And (laughs) even, you know, your public schools aren't teaching evolution. There's no alternative, uh, narrative to things. Sure. I wasn't very confident back then, I guess as most 12 year old boys, I didn't (laughs) think of myself as intelligent and I thought whatever questions I had were probably pretty stupid. And Mm -hmm. so I didn't chase that reason. And I kind of embraced things from a practical standpoint, which is also my nature realizing that I was in a family full of it. And here I am in this religion, everything was going to get difficult if I didn't. And so uh, I went forward and and accepted everything and got baptized one day. And I meant it when I did it. Um, but I wish that I'd had the confidence to pursue that questioning because, I mean, little did I know that I had, and, and this is a phrase that you use on your show a lot, and you're the first one that introduced me to this, and it's really pretty brilliant, is uh, as a 12-year-old stuck in that, I had zoomed out mm. and and seen the, the yeah. basic problem with the system, but I didn't have anybody else that had zoomed out or anybody to even bounce ideas off of. Yeah. And uh, that's one thing that I really appreciate about your podcast is how much you talk about zooming out and seeing just (laughs) the obvious, because when you're in it and you're grown in it, you just, you can't see the obvious because so many people around you just believe it. And you think that's normal, which is why we have to describe ourselves as ex-Christian because the standard is a Christian and to say right. you're an ex-Christian means I actually don't believe in that. You know, it's, it's an odd thing to describe yourself that way, but that, that was, that's kind of what I remember about, uh, about choosing to continue in the faith and taking it on myself. As far as being a child in it, you know, my grandfather being a preacher helped, I think, because I saw the loving side of that and I didn't think he was mm-hmm. a, a harsh fire and brimstone preacher, but at the same time, Uh, I knew about the literal eternal hell that was awaiting all of us kind of by default uh, before I can know. I mean, I don't remember not knowing about that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I sat, I sat through adult sermons as a child. It's not like they whisk off the children and, you know, I'm not one where information just falls on me and rolls right off. If they were talking about eternal hell, I would have taken that in. So (laughs) yeah, I remember ever not knowing it, you know, and that, that was a huge impact to me. 
Yeah. Do you feel like that? I mean, it sounds like it was a pretty fundamentalist institution in the way that they, you know, talk about hell or why, why else would you consider that fundamentalist or kind of what were like the core, I guess, core experiences that you had in the church that kind of defined what you, how you perceived the church of Christ, you know, what were like the feelings that went along with that? So one of the slogans um, that they use about the Bible, and again, nothing is centralized or universal, but they had a slogan that said, speaks where the Bible speaks and be silent where the Bible is silent. And I, that always rung true to me, uh, yeah. not going beyond what it says, but also accepting what it says. And mm-hmm. so for the most part, I was taught things like uh, a literal creation story and the earth being, you know, a young earth, 6,000 years old, give or take a little bit. Now, since the Church of Christ was not unified in everything, I was able to talk to my dad about things that didn't seem right. And you can work mm-hmm. out your faith however you want to in the Church of Christ. And so you can talk about how things aren't 24-hour days or how God could have done it any way he wanted to. But yeah. it was a very fundamentalist approach to uh, the Old Testament and everything is real and Jonah and the fish are real. The flood is real. Uh, God's wrath is certainly real. And then uh, in the New Testament, of course, we take all that literally too, which is one reason that they did um, baptism by immersion and there's no mm-hmm. sprinkling or just saying a prayer. The example at, at times in the Bible is being baptized and the right. way that was full immersion. Uh, again, literal scriptures uh, about homosexuality, we would uh, then, you know, the Church of Christ would never accept that as far as I know. Now, that wasn't yeah. a real topic that people preached on back then because it was, you know, it wasn't a big issue. But, uh, you know, divorce was a bigger issue back then. While now it's accepted culturally in most churches and even the Church mm-hmm. of Christ, if a divorced person comes to join the church, you don't tell them, no, you can't join because you're married to your second wife. You accept them for who they are. Okay. But back then, that was a, a little bit more of an issue. And just then you get to the extremes, like the Church of Christ didn't uh, didn't allow musical instruments in uh, worship. It's all a cappella singing. And yeah. that's because they felt there's a scripture in the New Testament that mentions uh, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. And the argument was, well, there's no instrument mentioned there. And you can go back to the Old Testament and find David who praised God with his heart, but there was no real uh, example of it in the New Testament. And so we didn't have musical instruments. Uh, then, I mean, then you get to crazy stuff. Like we would pick elders for our church. Mm-hmm. And one of the requirements for elders is that um, their children remain in the faith. And I forget the exact phrase that is used, but the word children is used. And mm-hmm. so they interpreted that to mean two or more because children is plural. So if you only had one child and they were faithful, you couldn't be an elder because you didn't have children. What? I know. Whoa. But that's the cycle that you get into when you yeah. go down an extreme legalism with the Bible is that you get to these silly things. And then, yeah. you know, we we were very conservative in our sect, but then there are even, you could go further down the line. There's There's groups that didn't have Bible class because they felt like when the church came together, they were supposed to be one body. So you didn't divide up into Bible classes or you didn't sing songs with a chorus because you weren't singing together in unison. You can just, you can really, oh. really pare it down to just crazy stuff. Yeah. Drink out of one cup instead of having other cups for, uh, for communion. Uh-huh. But uh, it's, it's that kind of fundamentalist. And, you know, there was a difference because you and Katie um, talk a lot about the evangelical movement that you were in for a while. Yeah. And then there was the charismatic movement that you were in. 
And I was very different than that. So while our journeys share a lot of the same emotions, mm-hmm. uh, coming from a strict fundamentalist background, what was important was showing up to church every time the doors are open. So Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, having your Bible lesson done so you can answer the questions when they come to you, reading the scriptures, um, not doing anything that looks bad. Don't be a stumbling block to anybody. You know, that that's a big one is don't be a stumbling yeah. block. But we never talked about um, a personal relationship with your Savior. Okay. It was not very emotional at all. And so that was something missing. I mean, I think Christianity thrives a lot on that personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And that was never a phrase that would have been said in my, yeah. my grandfather never used that phrase. That was just, that's not what was talked about. Uh, and similarly, we, we missed out on some of the bad stuff that came with evangelicalism later, like uh, the purity culture. Okay. So I would, I would say that probably started up in the nineties mm-hmm. and uh, that wasn't really a thing in the church of Christ. What, in the Church of Christ, you don't have sex until you're married. That's it. There's mm-hmm. no discussion about you being, a, you know, a great and wonderful sacrifice to your spouse and how great, you know. Uh-huh. There's a lot of the emotional guilt that comes with it. It's just, oh, you had sex well, you're going to hell. You know, unless oh you, <laughs> um, yeah, unless you, it, you know, you can, yeah, 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 and and turn from your ways. But it's it's very different. It just wasn't emotional like that. It's it's very legalistic. Yeah. Interesting. That's interesting that, you know, even thinking about it in that way, the super strict black and white simplicity of that belief system, how that could affect you differently than, you know, I mean, I guess I would have considered the churches and the circles we grew up in to be really black and white as well in a lot of areas. And I, and I think you said something about how in your sect of the church of Christ, they said what we, we speak when the Bible speaks and we're silent when the Bible's silent. The right, idea. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. I think the churches we grew up in probably said, said that same sentence or a similar sentence, you know, but then the outplay of that was just a little bit different. And, and like you said, I think purity culture, that stuff played in a lot more for us. And there was a lot more emotion and there was a lot more people talking about sex and talking about what's right and what's wrong and what you can do and what you can't do and how you're supposed to date and how you're not supposed to date. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's interesting hearing that you're saying the rules just like, no sex before marriage. That's an ironclad rule. And right. That's that was, <laughs> that was it. I mean, that was, just, and, and also you have to realize in the eighties, um, especially in the late eighties, uh, AIDS had come along and I was in Alabama. And so you mm-hmm. put together those three things. I'm in the Bible belt. I'm in a fundamentalist family and everybody was scared that they were going to die if they kissed the wrong person there for a while, because in the beginning yeah. of AIDS, nobody knew what was going on. Okay. And so all those things combined to where, as a teenager, you know, I'm a 16 year old boy. All you can think about is sex, but it's the last thing you're going to do. You know, yeah. That's just, yeah. it's just not on the table. That is not okay. going to happen. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wow. It's actually funny too. Something you mentioned earlier about how you said the church of Christ, that you don't use instruments. Um, that, that brought up a memory for me that I had completely forgotten about when Katie and I were looking for new churches in Wisconsin at one point, and this was like shortly after we got married and right when we were beginning to look for a church just for ourselves, we ended up going to a church of Christ um, 
church or going like going to a church of Christ meeting one Sunday morning, because we had heard that they were like super strict on the Bible. They really believe the Bible is literal. And at that point we're like, yeah, that's, that's right. That's what we need to do. <laughs> yeah. But I specifically remember the worship time. There's a guy preaching up in the front with a little podium and a little like flexible microphone coming out of the wooden podium. And now yeah. he's standing there preaching and he's like, all right, we're going to do some singing now, like open up your hymn hymnals. And so we open up the hymnals and suddenly he just starts belting it out into the microphone on the podium. And we're like, whoa, what's going on? It caught us by surprise. I'll never forget that now. And I'm really glad you mentioned that because I feel like that was some kind of weird hidden buried memory that you just brought up to the surface. <laughs> That's funny because yeah, it's, it was my baseline. That's just the way I knew people to sing. And so yeah. the first time I ever visited a church where there was a musical instrument, it was quite shocking. It seemed overpowering to me because I thought, I can't even hear the voices. There's that loud organ playing and all these instruments. And the first time I heard drums, I was like, oh, well, this is ridiculous. This isn't even yeah. church. You know, this I is could, way off. Yeah. yeah the other thing I probably ought to mention about the Church of Christ that they're known for, especially outside of the Church of Christ, like the Baptists who see them, is that generally we, I mean, we as in the Church of Christ, thought we were the only ones going to heaven. Okay. And so, yeah. The, Classic. <laughs> And exactly. And I remember thinking as, you know, a young teenager, wow, how lucky I was to be born into this family that is so mm -hmm. strong in the faith and just happens to be in the right one. And we take the Bible literally and we really follow it. And just how wonderful that is. I mean, it sounds so stupid and cringy for me to explain that. Now, but that's really, that's really what I thought. I yeah. Mean, I just, as a young time, I'm talking about 12, 13 years old, when your world is so small, it's fairly easy for those thoughts to root themselves. And that, yeah, that was the way I was. Yeah. There was, you had no chance to even think anything else. Everyone I, in your I, life was telling you the same thing, you know, I of mean, course you thought that. It bothers me that I had zoomed out to that one point and it bothered me enough and I didn't have anybody to help me. But yeah, in general, you just, you have to accept what's put in front of you or your, your life becomes very difficult in a family with that's so ingrained in it. Yeah, definitely. So you had that first kind of doubt around 12 or 13, around when you were getting baptized. Then did you kind of continue on as a Christian through your teens and into your 20s? Or, or what did the next few years leading up to kind of those first dominoes start to fall look like? So there was a long time till the next domino fell. Okay. And uh, I think to, to describe that gap, I kind of have to fill in what happened in my life and uh, how I accepted Christianity. You know, mm -hmm. you and Katie really... Uh, embraced it and wanted to spread the good news to other people and, mm -hmm. and loved the whole idea of, of Christianity and heaven. And uh, it wasn't that way for me. I would describe it as I accepted that it was true. And I certainly accepted that there was an eternal hell. Mm -hmm. uh, and I accepted that I was probably going to be saved from that. Uh, but also in the Church of Christ, you can fall away and then get grafted back in and fall away again. It's it's not a, okay. a once saved, always saved kind of thing. You can fall away. And so if you do a few bad things or or in a child's mind, you know, if you say a cuss word on your way out the door as you're leaving this life, uh-oh, you're in hell because you left oh, okay. your life with a sin and didn't pray for forgiveness. And, uh -huh. and so generally my attitude was one of acceptance. And, okay. uh, you know, I had times and I'll go over those, but I had times when I was more into it than others and when it seemed more real and more emotional to me. But I would say what happened is that I always kept um, church attendance and faith a bit on the back burner. It was never always my first thought. But, you know, I, 
I went to college for two years at a place called Harding University in Searcy, Arkansas, in rural Arkansas. And it's a Church of Christ school. There are a number of Church of Christ schools in the country. And uh, the reason I went there is because my grandparents, my, you know, my granddad, who I listened to preach and, and my grandmother, uh, I was their only grandson. They also had a granddaughter, but they had saved up some money and education was important to them. And so was, was God. And they told me that they would pay my tuition uh, to a Christian school if I would okay. choose to go to a Church of Christ school. Well, I wasn't a straight A student and I didn't earn scholarships anywhere. And mm-hmm. so I said, yes. And I wasn't thinking about things real hard back then. I kind of accepted that this was my life. And so I went to uh, Harding University for two years. And that's where my parents had met in the 1960s, I believe. And that's even where my grandparents who sent me there had met in the 1930s. So oh. I had a rich, deep heritage. Yeah, no kidding. School. Right. And I can't say that I was excited about going there, but I accepted it. And hey, you know, I was getting my tuition paid and yeah, my parents right. were going to pay for some living expenses and they worked real hard to do that for me. So I was going to take it. So I yeah. did. And uh, boy, just as soon as I got there within, you know, a month or two, I knew that I hated it. I absolutely hated the school. The school was pretty, you know, they had dress codes about how long your hair could be and how long your shorts had to be. And you had to be in at 11 o'clock and they'd come check in your dorm room to make sure you were in by oh. curfew and they would penalize you if you weren't. We had chapel every weekday and they would come check your assigned seat at chapel and make sure that you were there. And if you weren't, uh, you know, if you missed 10 chapels in a semester, you would get punished by having a, I don't know, a 5 p.m. curfew on weekends or something like that. I can't remember all Sheesh. the rules, but wow. it was real heavy. Yeah. And even though I had grown up in a conservative family, I didn't really have rules at home about how late I could stay out or what I could do. I think mainly because I was a nerd and I didn't get into trouble and my parents trusted me. I I had traveled around doing some sports and uh, stayed in hotels by myself. And I'd had plenty of opportunity to get in all the trouble I'd wanted and really Mm -hmm. never had. And then I go to this college that was treating me like I was going to cause trouble. And so I I took offense at that. I was upset that this college felt like they needed to put rules on me. Uh you know, I went there and I should have known everything before I got there, but I wasn't really paying attention. But so that was that was kind of uh, my first move away from home. And then after that, I went to uh, Georgia Tech. I transferred there for engineering. I told my grandparents, hey, I got to study engineering and they don't have a program here, which was okay. true. And uh, then fortunately, they supported my education on to Georgia Tech. And so I'm really appreciative to them. for yeah. that. It was a great thing. And I ended up getting a degree in chemical engineering. And, you know, I would go to church for the most part while I was in college. But uh Georgia Tech wasn't exactly a party school. It's strictly an engineering technology school. And so mm-hmm. uh, it wasn't real hard for me to just uh, stay calm and focus on studies and get through. And uh, at that point, I was out working as an engineer again in Arkansas. And uh, yeah, I just kept going to church. I joined a little church when I uh, moved to my job at a paper mill and, and taught a class to uh, fourth graders or fifth graders. And I generally do pretty well talking to, you know, the fourth to sixth grade boys. They kind of, they take me as being real and I listen to them. And so I remember teaching the class and I enjoyed it. And, uh, you know, you're able to ask them interesting questions and they'll actually think about the answers. Yeah. And uh, at that point, I really, I got married that time. One year after I got out of college, I got married to a girl I'd met at Harding University who was also um, very strongly Church of Christ. Her dad had been a preacher in a Church of Christ. She had grandparents that were in the Church of Christ. Her vertical and horizontal family was also a Church of Christ. And if you want me to go okay. into to that a little bit, I can, because that's a pretty important part of my background. Sure. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, when you're in college, 
obviously marriage is on your mind. If, uh, you know, if you're a 20 something year old boy and you're a virgin and you know, you don't want to remain this way your whole life and everybody's <laughs> right. married up. I mean, uh-huh. you know, I can't say that I was enthusiastic. I wasn't really looking for a wife, but I mean, that's kind of what has to happen. Yeah. And, uh, I had a girlfriend that wasn't in the church of Christ. Uh, she okay. was Lutheran, not Lutheran like Katie was, but you uh-huh. know, they went on Sunday sometime. And, okay. uh, you know, that was a real relationship I had with her. And it was on again, off again for a while over the period of about two years. And eventually I ended that relationship in what I would say was was premature and not because that should have been the person that I was with. That relationship was going to end. But what was really important in the Church of Christ was to not be unequally yoked to a non-believer. I don't know yeah. if you're familiar with that passage. Yeah. All my life I had heard how important it is to marry another person in the church, in the mm-hmm. church. That's the phrase they would use. And by that, they mean the church of Christ. Okay. Because that's the only church because we're the only ones going to have. Oh, right. That's right. Right. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah. so it's a very narrow, you have a very, very narrow selection of who you can well, choose. Tiny. From. Yeah, exactly. I had a tiny narrow selection. Yeah. And um, the woman I ended up marrying basically checked the boxes for me. Mm-hmm. And one of the boxes was that I could get along with her. I mean, she was intelligent. <laughs> we could have conversations. I hope so. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And, and I had not met another person in the church that I knew um, that I even wanted to really spend time around. And yeah. so I ended the relationship that I was in, uh, kind of restarted the relationship with the woman from Harding. And we ended up getting married uh, one year after I graduated when she finished grad school. And, you know, the things I look back on my life and think about, um, what I did differently because I was a Christian and the influences it had on me. I ended the relationship uh, with my girlfriend at that time too early. And I think it stunted my emotional growth because when you're in your early twenties and you're learning how to navigate the world of relationships and love, there need to be a few relationships that you see through from beginning to end. I believe Mm. that you see the, the ups and downs and, and you, you understand the general flow of a relationship. And I cut that short. I didn't see the end of that relationship um, because I knew that I needed to marry within the church. And yeah. I remember thinking that I couldn't be the strong one also. Like I'd explained, I, I never had faith at the forefront of my mind, but I accepted it. And okay. I knew I needed somebody strong in the faith to help me stay strong also. And so I okay. chose to, to, uh, to get to have a relationship with a woman that I knew would do that for me. And we ended up getting married okay. and uh, we stayed married a long time and we were married 22 years. Wow. So, okay. uh, yeah, it was a long time. And what happened yeah. in that? So there was a, you ask when the next domino fell, which I'm mm-hmm. getting around to, I'm rambling for long periods of time. Um, the next domino really didn't fall for me until sometime in the mid two thousands. I would say okay. so. You can bump all the way from, you know, the mid '90s to the mid 2000s um, without really much of a change. And the reason that is because life got busy for me. Okay, uh, I, I decided that I wanted to go to medical school, so that involved a lot of classes in addition to my full time engineering job. And then, uh, you know, you have to take a test, you have to volunteer, and then you get in. And then you've got four years of medical school and that just eats up every bit of time and effort you have. And then I did four years of residency and that eats up all your time and effort too. So in really for a decade, I was kind of pursuing my education and career 
while my wife was, she worked while I was in medical school, but not after that. She didn't work during residency or any time after that. Mm -hmm. Um, She worked and made some friends, but, you know, made a lot of church friends, honestly, in several places that we lived. Yeah. Whereas the people that were at the church where I went, obviously with her, they weren't really so much my friends as they were just acquaintances that happened to go to church. You know, my real friends were at work. And so we kind of, you know, the way people grow apart over decades, well, that's a big part of it is that we were just living in different worlds for that long period of time. So not to stretch that time out too far, but basically the next domino that fell, and I assume you want to move on to that, was probably, you know, 2007 or eight. And I was at work and I was talking to one of the nurses and, um, you know, you have some downtime at the hospital. So you just talk about whatever's on your mind sometime. And I made this comment and I said, man, I don't know what part of the discussion led up to it, but I said, I can't imagine one of my sons growing up to be gay. That was one, that would be one of the worst things I can imagine. I mean, that's what I, that, I just said that out yeah. loud to her, not thinking anything of it. And right now I, I cringe. I mean, it's, that's horrible to think back to what I said. Yeah. And she was probably five years younger than me. Uh, you know, I thought of her as younger than me anyway. And mm-hmm. uh, to her credit, she just called me out right there. She said, uh, I can't believe you just said that. I thought you were a nice person. And it really made me check up because yeah. I didn't think of that as being a horrible thing to say. Um, I didn't hate gay people. I didn't consider myself homophobic. I meant it more in a way that that would be a horrible struggle for them to go through. And then I also meant it in a way that I would have to deal with it and yeah. my family and my church and my, co- I mean, every, it's a problem. You know, I, I didn't mean it in a hateful way, but it was certain. It certainly sounded hateful. And, and then I came to realize that it was hateful eventually. Yeah. Yeah. But it, it took me, I don't know, two to four months for that to really sink in because sometimes I can be rude and sometimes I can be overly confident, but I'm not hateful. Yeah. And for me to come across as that to somebody and to realize that I sounded that way really hit me hard. And yeah. so I spent a I spent a lot of time thinking about it. Wow. So that and, one uh, conversation specifically, you're saying that you thought about that conversation for a long time. It really struck you. About that. Yeah. About that conversation yeah. and about whether it was right for me to feel that way. I, I mean, yeah. at that time I had two, two sons and they were probably, you know, seven and four years old at the time. You know, obviously this hadn't become an issue, um, but you always wonder what your kids are going to grow up to be. And you look for signs of how they are. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you think about, you know, are they going to grow up to be good at math or good at science or good at English? Are they going to be good readers and writers? Are they going to be faithful or not? Are they going to be gay or straight? All these things you think about. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, and it, it was almost not even a conversation. It was just a, a statement. And then she called me out on it and we moved yeah. on. And I've never been able to thank her for that. I wish I could see her again to tell her. Yeah, I was going to ask that if you're ever no. able to tell her. I mean, I think I didn't realize the significance that it played at that time. I mean, I knew it was significant, mm-hmm. but I didn't realize that I would look back 20 years from now <laughs> right. and think, wow, that really changed me. I just, I didn't know. A lot of times those moments happen. We don't know it at the time, but uh, eventually I had reached the point in my mind where I had resolved that I didn't care um, if either one or both of my sons were gay at all, that I would not 
reject them or make them uncomfortable in any way for being that way. And that if they were gay, that I would want them to be gay, to come out and to be exactly who they are. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I say it's a domino that fell. It's almost not really a domino that fell. It was the first time that I willfully decided that I was going to be something completely different than what I knew the Bible really called for. Wow. Because the Bible would not call for me to just willingly accept that person into my home yeah. the way that I wanted to. And so after I got to that conclusion strongly enough, um, you know, my wife and I were talking at one point and, and I told her, and I can almost remember exactly how I told her. I said, you know, I've been thinking about it. And if one of our sons turns out to be gay, I want him to bring his boyfriend over to our house on Thanksgiving and a Christmas holiday. And I'm going to invite him in and I'm going to hug him like he's a daughter-in-law. I'm going to love him. And I want him to sit at our table right beside us and eat with us and be part of the family because I'm not going to reject either of my sons for being gay. Yeah. I just, I straight out came out and said, I think okay. I needed to say it. I needed to make the declaration to myself. Yeah. That, to solidify it or something. Yeah. It's one thing to believe something within, but it's another thing to say it to somebody else, especially somebody that can, can take it for the declaration that it is because we had the same views on pretty much everything. Definitely. And, um, she said, and to her, she hadn't been through the emotional journey I had the three or four months before that. She said, I don't think I could do that. Now, she didn't say what specifically she couldn't do or, or mm-hmm. what she wouldn't do, um, but she just simply said that, and then we moved on. It, we didn't discuss it anymore, and she never went back and addressed it. We never, she never corrected it, um, wow. and I don't know what her feelings would be on it now. I mean, she's still faithful in the church of Christ, but, uh, you know, I don't know that that was a domino that fell that made me believe the Bible was wrong, but it was a, a line I drew in the sand that said, I'm not willing to reject my son for something like that. Yeah. The Bible. So that was big to me. Definitely. Yeah. I'm curious, how, how did you go from that initial comment from your coworker to three or four months later, you had kind of softened. And like you said, it, it was maybe one of the first times that you had allowed yourself to believe something that went against what you thought the Bible was saying. Right. Yeah. What, what were those emotional months? Like, I mean, what, like, what did that process look like? That well, I think, you know, all my life, I've, I've not really declared that I knew for sure um, that God was, was real and knew for mm-hmm. sure that there was a hell in heaven. I, I accepted it. Um, and, it, and there are some people that can make an argument from a biblical standpoint that that was cultural and or that the passages didn't mean what they mean, that homosexuality mm-hmm. is an abomination. Um, and I just I realized that the the people in front of me, my two sons in front of me were worth more than anything that might or might not be true and that I wasn't willing to reject them for anything. And and just on a, when you get down to a base level of what feels right and wrong. Somehow rejecting a person for that, for wanting to experience love, um, just didn't feel right at all. And I think on a, uh, in a way, too, I had been exposed to gay people because I had gone from um, growing up in the Church of Christ in the South where I would have never been exposed to a gay person or yeah. hear rumors of somebody or you make fun of somebody because maybe you think they might be. Yeah. Uh, to working in the healthcare field 
where there's plenty of gay people around. Even, you know, in Alabama in the 2000s, I worked with people that were knowingly gay. And Mm -hmm. being around people, you realize, wait a minute, these people aren't evil. They're not out to destroy (laughs) things. They're not Satan worshipers. They're not, you know, just me being with them or or talking to them or sitting beside them doesn't ruin me. There's nothing about it that hurts. (laughs) You know, so I it wasn't just all within, it was also being exposed to that and, and really seeing it for what it is, which is just normal people wanting to, to live and love and have relationships. Yeah. And I think also there's, I have, uh, it's very important to me, a sense of fairness is because Mm -hmm. we all have different priorities in in our, in our ethical world. And fairness was always important to me uh, to the point where, and this is kind of a quirky thing about my background. When I was at Georgia Tech, I took a, a class called History of the New South. And in that class, um, it was just a required class. We had to read the autobiography of Malcolm X. Well, I'd grown up in a uh, town that was probably 70% white, 30% black, and gone to schools that were integrated and, and seen a lot of racial tension uh, mm-hmm. growing up. But I never really stopped to think about why or what circumstances led to the situations mm-hmm. that I saw. I mean, I saw that generally black people were poorer and less well off than the white people that I was around. Um, and of course, most people around me seem to attribute that to some kind of racial stereotypical differences, but that didn't really make sense to me. Yeah. And then when I was in college, I was exposed to that, to the story of Malcolm X. And it really sparked my interest in history. I'd never been interested in any kind of history before, but a history that finally explained things around me explained why things were the way they were, or at least gave a view, really, I felt enlightened. And at that point, I took a few more African-American history classes. And then I ended up uh, finishing, even though I majored in chemical engineering, I had a, a minor in African-American history. And Interesting. Uh, so, so even back then, when I wasn't, you know, thinking about the religious issues, the sense of fairness or what's right was still in me. Okay. I credit to some degree my parents for raising me up that way. They didn't raise me in a racist way. They didn't raise me with hate. They raised me in a fundamentalist church, but it was a a loving type of environment that I was raised in. And so I think that sense of fairness also helped me make the decision that, hey, this is this is wrong that I would think this way about it. Yeah. Wow. That's that is really interesting. Um, I, I love that. I mean, it sounds really similar, actually, like you were mentioning earlier, kind of a zooming out even when you're in your small social circles, your small environment in your hometown and you zoom out and you start to learn the history of African-Americans and it gives you a so much broader context of why things are the way they are and who people are and why we have these feelings we have, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Yes. It, I, I really, really like the story I mean, I can, so far. <laughs> I can give a very specific example and you can edit this out if you want, but I find it sure. interesting. When I was, you know, 13 years old, 14 years old. I used to ride my bike about six miles to this uh, recreational area in the city that had a swimming pool and tennis courts and all that. And uh, of course I would ride through all kinds of different neighborhoods from my middle-class white neighborhood to the park. And some of them were bad neighborhoods and Mm -hmm. some of them were housing developments. And I didn't even realize at the time that they were public housing developments. They were more duplexes. These weren't high rises. Mm -hmm. They're just duplexes jammed close together. And when I'm riding my bike, you're particularly exposed to the surroundings when you're riding your bike through a a place. And uh, I had figured out the route to take so that I felt the safest, which I realized happened to be also the route that put me through 
the housing developments that had the white people in them. So I naturally chose to ride my bike as a white teenager yeah. through the white housing developments instead of the African-American housing developments or black housing developments. And I didn't realize, I mean, I'm just a stupid kid at that time. I didn't realize yeah. oh, this is a relic of segregation and housing development, how they didn't house them together. They separated them. And I just knew, all right, to get to the park safely, I don't need to turn there. I need to turn here. And, you know, if you're a white guy, you probably are a little safer in your white neighborhood when you're 12 years old than riding yeah. through a white neighborhood. And so, you know, being in college and then realizing, oh, my goodness, segregation wasn't long ago. It was just a few years ago, you know, because yeah. in the 80s, it was just yeah. a few years ago that the schools were segregated. Crazy. I went to a magnet school that was partially the purpose in elementary school was to integrate the schools in my city. And so yeah. I saw a lot of immediate effects from it that nobody explained to me until I got to college and learned it. Yeah. So, I, that's why I was so interested in it. And that's the part you can edit out if you want. <laughs> cool, man. <laughs> that is really interesting and really insightful. And I feel like it speaks to your attitude towards life and being always curious and trying to figure things out. Just like you said, it all fits together. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And this, I'm sure it's a bit of revisionist history too, because I think the histories we retain in our own minds are dynamic. You know, they, of course, it's not like I can recount every single event. I'm sure how I described my faith 25 years ago <laughs> It's hard to it's hard to recover those emotions, you know. Oh yeah, definitely. Well, however they live in your mind now, that's how they live in your mind now. So it almost doesn't matter what actually happened in the past. Like <laughs> that's true. That's you true. have the history you're living with. <laughs> it's there to stay. Um. So, so all right. So so we got up to the point. The first domino kind of fell with that conversation with your coworker, or it began to fall. What happened after that point? You told your wife, and then kind of what. Where did things go from there? Well, so that was, yeah. And we didn't pursue anything at that point as far as the discussion mm -hmm. of faith. And I hadn't lost my faith or wasn't rejecting at that point. But then probably six, seven years later, it was probably 2013, 14. Um, we had actually gone outside of the Church of Christ a few times to non-denominational churches uh, in the different places that we had lived. And okay. so we had experienced some of the evangelical influences. Now, the churches that we went to were more of a, Church of Christ flavor, like they may still have uh, baptism by emergence and uh, some other basic principles of the Church mm -hmm. of Christ, but also they were singing the newer songs that were coming out, you know, the contemporary Christian songs, and yeah. they would have a worship group singing, or then they would have a guitar, or they would have a whole band, and people would raise their hands and clap, and, it, and you would talk about your personal relationship or accepting Jesus Christ or your walk with the Lord, you know, all those phrases yeah, start to yeah. come into existence. Uh -huh. And while, so while I didn't experience it to the full degree that you did, I got a taste of it. Okay. And when we moved to the city where we are now in Huntsville, it was probably 2013, give or take a year. There's a large church of Christ very close to where we moved and functional youth group, you know, lots of people go there in the community. And we had decided, you know, what, it's time to, it's time to get back to our roots. I think, mm -hmm. We had always studied the scriptures really uh, hard in, in services in the Church of Christ. Like you took your Bible to church. You did not go to church without your Bible. Yeah. You carried your Bible. I mean, you like get in trouble if you were a kid and you didn't have your Bible. <laughs> sure. So you go to your Bible, you read, you study. Every sermon uh, has five, six, seven, ten scriptures. Uh, your class is probably a, a chapter study in a book. And maybe you're working your way through one book of the New Testament where you cover a chapter every every week. And then in the uh, non-denominational churches, it was it was much more touchy-feely. 
Sometimes mm-hmm. you'd have to hold hands with people, which I never enjoyed doing. <laughs> you'd have to go forward and pray on them, and you'd you know put your hands on other people, and uh-huh. and uh, I think both of us, since we had our roots in the fundamentalism, uh, wanted to get back there a little bit, and wanted our children maybe to to see what it really meant to study the scriptures and follow them. And so yeah. we agreed together to go back to a traditional Church of Christ, and I think that was the beginning of the end for me because not long, I started getting very frustrated in sermons or lessons because things would get said that I didn't agree with. Okay. And seemingly everybody else agreed. It was just little stuff here and there, but then the next turn, if you want to know the real domino that fell, and this was the switch that kicked on for me. And this, you know, just as an aside, I've listened to a bunch of, uh, deconstruction and deconversion stories. I mean, mm-hmm. a lot of them and not in person, all on podcasts. And I love to hear the stories because I like to see what got people to, to wake up and leave. Yeah. And it's funny because it, for a lot of people, the trigger is not something that works for anybody else. And so I'm going to yeah. explain what happened to me and it won't <laughs> seem significant to anybody else, but to me, it was surely significant. Um, uh-huh. And I'll, I'll even, I'll, there was one other, I think of so many things I wanted to say that I didn't get to, to tell you. I didn't have... Uh, a background that was abusive. I don't have a horrible story about why I had to get out. Yeah. And I think that's one reason I like listening to you and Katie so much because a lot of the deconversion stories I've listened to are just amazing that they survived and that they got out and how strong these people are to deal with what they went through. Right. And mine wasn't like that at all. Mine was more of a logical person stuck in an illogical environment at times that just felt like he was probably going to hell a lot of times (laughs) and really suffered the mild consequences over a long period of time that come with that. Yeah. And so for some reason I had decided that I needed to sort out in my mind, what was going to happen to uh, a person like a suicidal um, extreme Islamic terrorist. Mm-hmm. Because that example always bothered me. And and as soon back when 9-11 hit and then there were other bombings, people would discuss it like, oh, it was such a cowardly act done by these cowardly people. And, you know, mm-hmm. they would just belittle them. And that never made sense to me. Yeah. I always thought, well, no, that was very brave of them to do that. They had a right. lot of courage. They flew themselves into a building and killed themselves. It was for a terrible reason. And it did a terrible thing. But you can't really call them cowardly. And yeah. so in my yeah. mind especially knowing that some of these people, you know, grew up in madrasha, madrasas, is that right? You know, the, the schools where they just really don't study anything else other than the Quran and they memorize everything and they're really indoctrinated. And I love that word indoctrinated. They're indoctrinated mm-hmm. from a young age in a much, much stronger way than I, were, than I was. And so you take a person like that and you point them in the right direction with the right motivation and they do something like, uh, you know, a suicide bombing where they kill some innocent people with the idea that they're doing the most noble thing they can do. Yeah. And so to me, that person has a clean conscience for serving God. Yeah. Yeah. The absolute best thing he knew to do. And maybe right. he thought he was saving his family in the process, uh, gaining some eternal life for it. I don't know exactly what their thought process was because I've not studied Islam in depth at all, but I had trouble reasoning out what was going to happen to that person. Yeah. Well, in, in the church of Christ, or at least in, in my version and in the people I had talked to, sometimes the discussion comes up, what happens to the people that haven't been exposed 
to Jesus and the story mm-hmm. and the Bible? How do they, how are they going to be judged? What is their future going to hold for them? Mm-hmm. And I guess some Christians think, well, if they didn't hear about Jesus, they're going to go to hell, mm-hmm. which seems kind of unreasonable if you didn't even have a chance. That is pretty and, unreasonable. <laughs> yeah. So, so there was a scripture, um, and I don't know exactly where it is. I actually made a list of scriptures, but I won't go to reading for you. But there was one about, uh, and I think actually Romans 2, verses 14 through 16, about how the conscience will basically be the guide for people that don't know Jesus. And it mm-hmm. will even be a testimony for them. And so in my mind, if people live with a clean conscience, doing what they thought was morally and ethically right, treating people mm-hmm. around them the way that they, the best they knew how, then they would be judged accordingly by a fair God and then enter heaven or hell, whichever one is appropriate. Mm-hmm. But it didn't make sense that this, this bomber, this, you know, hypothetical bomber could do that because yeah. I don't want to be arm in arm with this guy that just killed a bunch of innocent people. Right. Cause he was doing the right thing. I couldn't totally. get to that. Point. I couldn't accept it. Yeah, yeah. So what I eventually decided was that killing a person that is not an immediate threat to you or to someone with you is obviously wrong, whether you want to call it a sin or whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. That's a transgression. That is obviously wrong. Mm-hmm. And that anybody that uses any kind of common sense should be able to figure out. And so I reasoned that that bomber was not going to go to heaven and not be judged righteous by God because he had uh, gone against what was so clearly wrong. Yeah. And, and I, so I, the way I stated it in my mind is that guy had to use common sense. He, it was a, his burden was to use common sense to figure out that was wrong. Even if people told him it was the right thing to do. Yeah. And I landed on that conclusion pretty hard after I thought about it. Hmm. And then one day, probably several days after I landed on that conclusion, it dawned on me, I'm holding him responsible for using common sense. (laughs) Oh my God. I think we all have to use common sense. (laughs) (laughs) And I mean, literally, it, it just hit me like a ton of bricks one day. I can't, I, we all have to use common sense. I mean, it just washed over me. Yeah. Wow. I'm not using common sense. And, you know, since I had my science background, there were tons of apologetics and I had the most cognitive dissonance of just about anybody you could find in that kind of environment. Uh-huh. And it always bothered me. <laughs> that I had to just sweep that all under the rug with whatever, you know, apologetic I could come up with at the time. Right. God knows God can do it any way he wants. Sure. The creation story doesn't make sense, but he couldn't explain his ways to us. Um, so I remember thinking, um, okay, common sense. Here we go. I'm yeah. going to use common sense. And I decided whatever comes up as a problem. And when you're going to a fundamentalist church three times a week, there are many problems that <laughs> sure. on a regular basis. I'm sure. I, I had decided, I said, you know what? I'm not going to whack a mole anymore. When a problem pops up, when something pops up that doesn't seem right or doesn't seem common sense, doesn't seem legitimate or just seems wrong, I'm going to let it sit there. And I'm going to let it be wrong. I'm not going to push it back under. I'm going to let it sit. And I said, like, I'm just going to make a pile of this stuff. Yeah. You know, in my mind, I'd made a pile to the side of <laughs> all the stuff that's wrong. And uh-huh. it doesn't take long till that pile starts really mounting up. And then it becomes, you know, two years worth and you got 50 things in the pile. Yeah. You know, whether homosexuality or 
the role of women or the genocidal nature of God or the eternal, eternal punishment of hell being so out of proportion to anything we do and just cruel and unjust on every level. And then the Old Testament stories and animals are talking. And then one day you read Revelation and just it's just this whole pile of stuff that doesn't make sense. Yeah. And so that's what really that was the switch that flipped that let me start keeping track of the problems. Holy cow. Yeah. So it was it was that kind of the elevation of common sense above like a adherence to a religious book or a religious belief that you kind of came to terms with in your mind. And then you applied that to yourself. And because you applied that to yourself, it made you basically forced you to deconstruct everything that you were hearing at church every week. It did. It did. And yeah. you know, when that, when I realized that I can look back at that moment and I didn't even know the phrase cognitive dissonance mm -hmm. at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, because I, I let those problems build up for a couple of years before I went really reading and searching. Okay. But, uh, I remember the day I, I saw that phrase. I'm like, oh, my God, that's my phrase. That's what I have. That's me. <laughs> that's what I have. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was my whole mind was full of. And then you learn about straw manning. And, oh, my God, that's what they're doing with science at church. Like, yeah. That's why I get mad when they talk about anything. <laughs> straw manning. I just didn't know how to say that. I mean, uh -huh. And so. I just got opened up to so much, but yeah, you know, interestingly enough, um, I've heard, you know, I've heard you and Katie talk about doubting a lot too, in some of your podcasts mm -hmm. and the different nature of doubt. And I've tried to figure this out for myself too. I had doubts all through my life at various times mm -hmm. and I would talk to people about them, I guess, because I was curious of how they dealt with them. I think there's a mindset of doubting where you think, Oh, I've got a problem with that. I wonder how other people deal with that. Hey, how do you deal with this problem? Okay, what do you deal with this problem? And then you kind of take what you can from those people and think, all right, well, this is how I'm going to deal with this problem. And you come up with your own apologetic that means something to you. And then you move on because you don't want it to destroy your whole faith or bring everything down. You just want to know how to deal with it. Yeah. But then I remember when that, uh, when that switch flipped and I was at a point in my life where I did not have a desire to believe it anymore. I, and I remember when I got to start using common sense, I got excited about it because I thought, this may not be true. This may not be true. Hell yeah. may not be real. I got to figure this out. Uh -huh. And there was, a, there was a desire. I think I wanted to know the real truth. And if that meant it wasn't real, I really wanted to know that. I didn't want anybody to tell me how they got around it and how, and how I could too. And so... I internalized it 100%. I didn't talk to anybody about it. Not mm -hmm. my wife, not my friends, not people at church, not leaders at the church, not anybody. Yeah. And when are you, were you wanting to kind of figure that out for yourself before you brought that up with anyone else close to yeah. you? Well, when I started down that road, you know, it wasn't my plan to, I mean, you don't start down the road going, all right, I'm going to deconvert myself. Here right. Yeah, definitely so it's not. Just, it's not. You just start down the road like, man, I'm going to really figure this out. Yeah. And uh, I remember one of the, the biggest thing for me was hell, I mm -hmm. think, and, and overcoming the idea that hell is real and it's just waiting for me as a default. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, I think I'm past that fear now. It doesn't really haunt me any now, mm -hmm. but for a long time, I felt like it did and it would come and go and to work my way to the point where I could convince myself that 
there really wasn't a hell. I say convince myself. I mean, you are convincing early in the early right. stages right. Um, to even open your mind up to the possibility that it's not real. Mm-hmm. And now it just seems silly that it would be real to me. But in those early stages, it's a struggle. But uh, yeah, I managed to get myself there just completely on my own. And then eventually there's enough asking questions where you go, all right, I got to read about this. And, and <laughs> yeah. since I'm scientific, um, I wanted to read about evolution because in my mind, I'd already, always had some problems with the gaps of evolution. Mm-hmm. I couldn't understand how we got from monkeys to humans. That was a hard thing for me to grasp. Mm-hmm. Also hard for me to grasp how, how life ever came from non-life, which is still yeah. difficult for me to imagine. I mean, that's a pretty significant question. <laughs> I think yeah. that's a hard yeah. question for anyone to grasp. Biogenesis and stuff. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's not something we can ever know. I mean, the, you know, there's theories and uh, we're still trying to learn as much as we can about that. And I'm mm-hmm. not an expert on it, but uh, because of my scientific background and what I felt the first interest in, I found Dawkins first. So I read some Richard Dawkins. Yeah. Went in with a heavy hitters right off the bat. Well, I didn't know it was a heavy hitter. I probably just did something like Google, you know, you know, whatever. And, and that pops up. But by that time I was ready to be a non-believer. I just needed to know what was true and what wasn't. So I wanted to get something beyond the Christian influences that I'd always had. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you were, you were ready for it at that point. I was going to say when I, when I first started doubting my faith and wanted to kind of read the world's in quotes, the world's perspective on, on creation and evolution and all this stuff. I tried reading some Richard Dawkins and I was like, this guy, he's so mad and he's so mean and he's so bitter. I don't want anything to do with him. I wasn't ready for him yet. (laughs) That's funny because yeah, I read him and it just instantly landed with me. Like everything he was saying, I'm like, Oh my God, this is so good. (laughs) Through This is amazing. Uh Yeah. So yeah, I really enjoyed Dawkins. Okay. This sense of relief for you. So you started, started reading some books, started kind of looking outside of yourself, outside of the Christian circles. What brought you to the point to where you could actually say, I don't believe anymore, or or I'm not a Christian anymore. Yeah. So now we're going to tie into my personal life some, Mm -hmm. um, which so I had been married for 22 years and um, we had grown apart over a long period of time. Mm-hmm. And then I had just spent three years, four years going through this relatively long, serious deconversion process yeah. without saying a word to her about it, because that's not really something you can discuss. I mean, I could have discussed doubts, but I couldn't have ever said Hey, I'm not going to, I'm going to try not going to church for a while. You know? Right. And, and so I had, I had become a different person and our marriage was already struggling for a lot of reasons. And one of the reasons that I won't talk about too much in detail, but I'll just affirm what you and Katie have talked about is that, you know, we were both, I was 23, she was 24 when we got married. Uh, we were both virgins. Mm-hmm. And uh, when two people that have been scared off sex their whole life get married and they're virgins in their mid, mid early twenties, that is not a good thing. That does not work well. <laughs> right. And so we we had the typical struggles, um, and then probably then some that go along with growing up in a in a fundamentalist Christian environment, and then trying to figure it out later. And we, you know, we had uh, a physically intimate life, but it never was what it should have been without that influence. And I still blame Christianity for a lot of that. And I'm yeah, I'm sure some of it had to do with the fact that I didn't know what I was doing. I mean, there I was a young, ignorant, 
you know, <laughs> I tried my best, but I'm sure I wasn't uh-huh. doing a good job. But, I, you know, there were a lot of factors in my personal relationship that weren't good in our marriage. And I had come to the point where I didn't really want to be married anymore because mm-hmm. I knew and, and my wife was a very uh, she's very adherent and very much a strong believer, which is what I wanted mm-hmm. when I married her. And so yeah. I got what I wanted. But then when I was ready to be done with it, there was no way she was ever going to be done with it. And beyond that, um, you know, I've heard you and Katie talk about this before, and I can go on a little a diversion about this. In the Church of Christ, the phrase divorce is not an option. Mm-hmm. Very common. When you get married, divorce is not an option. Yeah. And I was I heard sermons over and over again about um how people in the world approach marriage and they just figure if it's not going to work, they get divorced, but we know divorce is not an option. And then um, just how, how much of a prison that can make a marriage. Yeah. Right. Because you think that's a good thing when you're entering it. Good. This person knows we're not getting divorced. Yeah. I know we're not getting divorced. Great. We're not getting divorced. Yeah. But pretty soon that can become, okay, I'm stuck with this. <laughs> All right. I got to make the best of it. And, yeah. you know, I guess the mature way would be, well, let's go to counseling and figure this out. Let's really work on it and make it the absolute best marriage we can. But, you know, I probably wasn't pretty mature and I just figured, all right, well, I'm going to do what I can to make this work and I'm going to try to keep her happy and I'm going to try to find enjoyment myself. Mm-hmm. So you end up um, creating almost a facade of a relationship yeah, because you know you're stuck. Right. You know you're stuck. And uh, that's where we were at the time. I knew I was stuck for a long time. Well, and that this is where I, I kind of set off a nuclear bomb in my life. This was the moment that my internal struggles led to something happening in the real world. Uh-huh. Um, my wife had asked to spend some time um, with me that night. One night was the afternoon. And I said, well... Uh, I don't want to. And I think we need to get counseling because, you know, we're having trouble and she may have sensed it some already. Mm -hmm. Sure. She did, but she was probably in denial about some of it. And I'm sure that hit her just like a ton of bricks. And I I still, I feel bad that I did that, but I didn't know how else to do it. And I didn't know where I was at the time. Yeah. You know, I thought I didn't want to stay married, but I didn't know that for sure. And uh, then (laughs) My next statement right after that was, and also, let's not get a Christian counselor because I don't believe in God. Oh, my gosh. So, yeah. So, I kind of blew up everything. Yeah, that's a big one. You know, yeah. I mean, I, I, well, I can, you know, you laugh and I can kind of laugh, but it's really, I mean, it was, in a sense, a horrible thing to do. I'm sure. I feel really guilty about having to do that, but I don't know. I mean, man, that's a tough thing to to deal with. I don't know how I could have handled it better. I'm sure I could have some way, mm-hmm. but I basically, yeah, dropped two nuclear bombs at the same time. Yeah. And so that's how, it, that's how it became out. That's how okay. I came out. Okay. And even then, um, you know, we agreed that I would still keep going to church. I mean, my boys were going to church. That was our life at the time. You know, all her friends go to church and uh, said, yeah, I'm going to keep going to church. I'm not going to stop going. Mm-hmm. And so I kept going for a few months, probably two or three months after that. And then she actually told me, she's like, I need you to stop going to church. I need you to tell our boys that you don't believe anymore. I need you to tell your parents, you know, this isn't working. And yeah. I, I know 
to some degree. Why? Because maybe I, I think I heard in, in maybe your most recent uh, interview with Andy and Jeremy, mm-hmm. they talked about when you are sitting through something like church with somebody else that you hear it through them to some degree. Yeah. Yeah. I love how she said that. Me being there ruined church for her. Right. Yeah. She heard every problem. And Mm -hmm. it's like taking your mom to a rated R movie. You know, you start watching (laughs) the rated R movie through your mom's eyes. Right. Yeah. Ruins it. Ruins the movie. (laughs) Yeah. I'm I'm sure that I ruined church for her at that point. Okay. So then I told my, um, my kids and my parents, which was tough. And those are really the only people I told personally, everybody else just heard it. Okay. Okay. And was that process of you kind of telling your family and your, I mean, your, your kids and your parents, was that uh, really difficult for you to do? Or was it a sense of relief? Was it a mix of both? It was, it was a mix of both. Um, I had grown to really hate what I saw being said in front of my two sons at church. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so in a way I was very excited to tell them, okay. but I knew that it was emotionally, it was going to be tough on them. And yeah. I, you know, one of my kids is very sensitive more so than the other. And I really hurt for him and how I knew he would take this because I knew it was going to be hard on him. And so mm-hmm. I hated to tell them, but at the same time, I was excited to tell them because I wanted to wash my hands of it as quickly as possible, basically. Sure. And and I'd already essentially raised my voice. I mean, they were 15 and 12 or 13 at the time when I told mm-hmm. them. And so they had already heard too much formative stuff for me to just take it all back. I couldn't. And they, and they still go to youth group activities and church with their mom and church at college. So they're still in it, but we have discussions and they've at least heard an alternative point of view. Yeah. As, as far as my parents go, that was, that was a more difficult part for me, for sure. Um, I told my dad first and, uh, you know, we had a short discussion about it, probably 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. And I remember one of the paths of the discussion we went down. I, I basically said, um, when I'm at the hospital and I'm working on patients, prayer doesn't do me any good. This is not what fixes things. It doesn't help. There's nobody listening. This God does not care what's going on down here. You know, Mm. when I'm taking care of a three-year-old with leukemia and we're putting them to sleep so that he can get chemotherapy into a spinal canal and it's the 10th time he's had it done, there's not a God up there that can justify doing this. If he's an all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving God, this is not the result. And so... I think he saw that, I think the way he phrased it was that my job posed, uh, because I, I work in a hospital, I'm an anesthesiologist, because I saw sick people at my job and a lot of bad things that it was particularly uh, a challenge for me to believe. So he didn't say stumbling block, but I think he feels like That's my what he job felt. makes it difficult for me to believe. And, and I think yeah. he's got a little bit of sympathy in that. But I asked him, um, so why do you pray? And he said, mm-hmm. Or, and he said, I don't know because we're told to, (laughs) because, and that was, I kind of went out of order, but I, his view and the view that I'd adopted was that God basically had put things in motion and he had intervened at times, you know, in critical junctures in the old Testament and Mm -hmm. Jesus's time and the apostles had intervened in the laws of nature. Uh, But now we're just down here on earth doing the best we can. 
Mm -hmm. world is spinning. God's got his hands off of it and things are happening. And one day it's all going to end. And I think that was was his view, but I, and I I think I pointed this out to him too, because I thought this would land with him. And I, I don't know that it did. There's a scripture that I heard growing up quite a bit, um, for him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not to him, it is sin. Hmm. And uh, I don't know where in the new Testament that is maybe James or something, but once you start holding your God to the same standard that a person is held to, then it just falls apart. I mean, why can't we say if a God knows to do good and does it not, he's a bad God. Yeah. 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 That's a good question. (laughs) <laughs> and to put it crudely, I always say, I don't, you know, I don't know if there's a God or not, but if there is, he's up there and he does not give a shit about what's going on down here. <laughs> right. That's what I would say after I got, you know, in a position where I had to take care of some poor kid that was just truly a victim of bad circumstances and, and had nobody, there's no God reaching down and taking care of that kid. And, and that, that really bothered me for a while. Yeah, man. Well, I just want to acknowledge that, that was a really captivating story, first of all. And you're really good at telling your story. <laughs> I'm just here listening. I'm like, it's like I'm watching a movie or something. So I I really appreciate how well you're telling your story for one, but also I just really appreciate how vulnerable you've been and appreciate that you've been willing to share, you know, about your personal life and your marriage and your kids and all that. Um, yeah, it, it means a lot. And I, I feel touched by your story. And I'm really, really glad that you were willing to come on and share all that with me. Um, I did want to keep asking a few more questions. Yeah, great. And kind of maybe fast forwarding fast forwarding a bit to kind of where we're at now. Okay. I really liked something that you wrote in your form submission on the website. You wrote, I am free now, but I'm still bitter. But part of the struggle is figuring out who or what to be bitter at. Um, and I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that sentiment. Sure, sure. It's it's an interesting roller coaster of emotions being an ex-Christian, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I I feel free to make my own moral judgment judgments that are in the best way I can imagine possible. I can choose to accept a homosexual person 100% completely as they are and a trans person and whatever. I love the fact that I can make my own moral judgments and feel completely good about them. (laughs) That's a good feeling. Very free in that sense. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, then there's other smaller stuff. Like I feel free to say, fuck all I want. I don't have to worry that I said that (laughs) word. Now I'm respectful in that I don't say it in front of other people because I know it it falls on their ears harshly and it doesn't do me any favors to say that in front of them. Yeah. But I don't have to worry about that. I don't have to worry about some show that I watch on TV. Like my mom was all worried that I was watching three's company when I was growing up for one day at a time, which were sitcoms that were popular. I mean, you know, I don't have to worry about these little things, these little impurities that get in our lives. I can be a moral person and watch a show with a cuss word. I can say a cuss word. I can masturbate. I can do all those things without worrying that I'm going to end up in hell because I did that. Yeah. Freedom to do the little things, you know, that don't matter. And then there's a freedom to judge things that, um, you know, I considered a crime when I was uh, a believer that I see don't have a victim. There's no victim to homosexuality. That's just a person being a person. And and I'm free to think that. And so I really, really like that. And also I would say I'm free to be a good person, which sounds kind of weird, but what I mean by that, and I discovered this um, 
just completely unwitting. I didn't know this was going to happen. You know, after you deconvert there, you don't understand what's going to happen. Yeah. I found myself having more sympathy for other people. Um, <laughs> and I, it dawned on me at some point, like, wow, David, you're, I think you may be a good person. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because before I'd always had some sympathy for people, but also I'd always, I mean, I was taught what a free moral agent was from the time I was six or seven years old and how we were responsible mm-hmm. for our own decisions. And so I saw the world from a perspective of a person that made the right decisions. And if somebody was in a bad situation, they must have made the wrong decision. Sure. A, yeah. A harsh way to view the world. The yeah, world. No kidding. And and then you're commanded to have sympathy for them. Like, okay, I'll have some sympathy for you and I'll help you. But it's because you made the wrong decisions. Yeah. Day. But like, it's still your fault. Right. Right. I was yeah. still, it's a, come yeah. on. But now I can just look at people and go, Wow, they really need help. They're in a bad yeah. spot. I don't know what they did to earn this, but they may have been put in a terrible situation and not given the gifts or opportunities that I had. And I can just help them. And that that feels amazing to actually yeah. want to do that of my own accord. I don't even have to credit God with giving me the desire to be good. I can just right. actually be good. And it really, it feels nice. I really like it. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> no, that's amazing. <laughs> now, what was the other? So you talk about freedom the, and then oh, bitterness. Yeah, the bitterness, second half. Yeah. So I am, so I'm bitter, but I've struggled with what to be or who to be bitter towards. And I think you and Katie probably struggled with this some because I heard your discussions about growing up in a loving home and Mm -hmm. parents that didn't abuse you. Um, You know, all of our parents mess us up in one way or another in small ways, but I wasn't ever abused. I wasn't, uh, with overly strict parents, they gave me so much. I had so much opportunity. Um, And so I really am thankful to my parents and grandparents for everything they did for me. But then again, you know, they raised me in that fundamentalist way, but my parents, um, that's the way they were raised. Yeah. I don't know how my grandparents were raised. I mean, they, you know, to some degree, that was the early 1900s, my grandparents. So it doesn't matter really how they were raised. How much knowledge did you have access to? So I think, you know, I realized that my parents and grandparents did the best they could with the knowledge that they had, and they did a fantastic job. But the two things I'm really mad about, still bitter, was that as a seven-year-old, I knew eternal hell was waiting Mm -hmm. as I was not a good person because I was a sinner. And then also the second thing that really makes me bitter is that I was told over and over again by teachers and leaders in the church and preachers and friends, parents, everybody emphasized Mary in the church. Yeah. Unequally yoked to a non-believer. And that affected my whole life. Mm -hmm. And so those two things I'm really bitter about now, how, you know, you want to be bitter at like people or a real, like <laughs> something, you know, no yeah. destination for that bitterness. That's an right. idea. <laughs> and, yeah. And those people that said that didn't have any ill intentions. And so I don't, I don't hold anything against them, but I, man, I hate those ideas Yeah, that we're all bound to hell by default and that you have to marry within your strict little small sect of the church or you're definitely going to go to hell. Those that's what I'm bitter about are those two things really. Yeah. Definitely. No, that makes total sense. I relate to you a lot on that because just like you said, I, my, I don't think my parents did anything wrong. I don't think they traumatized me unnecessarily. You know, I think they were trying to do the best they could. And that was the way they knew how to do the best they could was teaching me about this religion and all of that. But of course I, I totally feel bitter that I learned about hell when I was young too. You know, that's, 
that's something I really wish that I could remove that piece out of my childhood and just see what the trajectory of my life would have been like oh, without that, you know? Yeah. I mean, who knows, man, it's, I can't remember ever not knowing about hell. Right. Yeah. Who knows? Yeah, <laughs> so, well, I mean, part of the, think- part of the motivation to do this and it, even to have you on and share your story and stuff is hoping that, you know, maybe there's a, a few young parents who are listening to this conversation who now, because of something that was shared, they won't teach that to their seven-year-old. And now when that seven-year-old grows up, they can have kids and they won't teach that to their little kids. And, you know, and it's a multiplicity effect and hopefully uh, we can slowly change things, you know, I yeah, mean, it's, yeah, it's already yeah. changing. There's a lot of people leaving the church and a lot of, a lot of people kind of waking up from this stuff. Um, but yeah, there it does feel they, good to do our part in a way. It does. It feels great. You know, I, mm-hmm. I always felt guilty about not wanting to spread the good news of the gospel when I was a Christian because yeah. I could not get excited about it. it didn't make sense why it it's it's news. bad news. Yeah. It's, news. it's bad news. Yeah. yeah but, I don't want to spread this. <laughs> yeah. But since I became a non-believer and I realized that hell's not waiting on me, I really do want to tell everybody. I yeah. want to tell so many people. And I think I tried that at the beginning and they don't really take kindly to that. Yeah. <laughs> so they don't want to hear that. I've had to restrain myself. I'm, <laughs> I'm learning. All right. Well, is there thinking back on on your whole lifetime of all this is a big question, but is there anything that you wish that you would have done differently as part of this process? Uh, As part of the deconversion process, I guess if you start when the, the switch was flipped for me and I started using common sense, I mean, I don't Maybe I shouldn't have set off the two nuclear bombs at once. I mean, that was mm-hmm. a lot to, to put on somebody. I wish I had handled that differently. But again, I don't know how. I don't know what I would do to fix that yeah. because I really did need to go through that deconversion process by myself. I needed to own it. Yeah. And uh, unfortunately, when you do go through it by yourself for a couple of years, um, you really get to feeling like you're on an island. You really do own it. And you're the only one. You, you don't know that anybody else is having those problems. And um, so I don't know that I would have changed anything really. That I wish if I could have changed something, I would have changed the 12 year old David. I would go back and tell him that uh, he zoomed out and really, he really hit on the problem. The doctrine of atonement through blood sacrifice is a problem. I mean, I didn't know those words back then, but I would yeah. have told him, you have hit on a major philosophical problem of Christianity and nobody's talking about it, but pay attention, you know, listen to your own, listen to your gut, you know, go with it, follow those doubts because there's something real there. And, uh, you know, if I had told 12 year old David, you're going to be back here in, uh, you know, 30 years asking the same question, (laughs) I don't think I would have believed it, but I I wish I could have reached him because that would have, that might've changed the trajectory of my life. But that being said, you know, it's hard to argue with where I am in life right now. I mean, I'm pretty successful professionally. I'm happy. Um, you know, so I, if I change something, man, the unintended consequences might've had del- deleterious effects. So <laughs> true. I guess That's not. True. I have regrets, but I don't know what I'd change. Yeah. All right. Well, beautiful. I think we'll wrap it up there. Um, thank you so much again for coming on and being willing to talk with me and share all of that. Yeah. I, well, and uh, everybody who's listening just is really, really appreciates that. Well, thank you so much for your podcast. I mean, you and Katie, I, I feel like I know you, even though, you know, this is our second time to speak. Uh-huh. Via Zoom. Um, I've listened to your podcast so many times through and 
and picked up different phrases. And I mean, it, it plays when I'm sleeping at night because I, sometimes <laughs> I just need something on the background and I'll wake up and I know what podcast it's in. And I'm like, oh, I skipped two of them. I skipped the one we told the parents. You know, I, there's there's so much that I know about the two of you. And I I want to say thank you for putting all that out there because um, for me, it's it's helped me heal a lot. I think when I started listening to y'all, uh, and I know I told you this story, and I'm, I'll tell you the story and you can edit it out too. I found your podcast one night in a hotel room when I wasn't sleeping very well. It was 2 a.m. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was just scrolling through and iTunes suggested your podcast. So, oh, it's got a cool title. I like that. Mm-hmm. So I'll scroll through the, the subjects. And I found the one on indoctrination. And this was after you'd already gone through all the first season. Childhood yeah. indoctrination. I'm like, oh, I'm going to play that one. And I listened to it and uh, you and Katie go over your inner child work and talk about what seemed like the corniest thing at the time, which is going back to your, uh, <laughs> your 12 year old self or whatever you choose to go back to and talk to them and mm-hmm. tell them. And, and I actually paused the podcast at that point And I thought, well, all right, I might as well try it. That seems crazy, <laughs> but I'm going to try that. And uh, I did. And I went back to 12 year old David and I, I, uh, told him to get a little more confident and that he was smart and he was thinking of things that other people hadn't thought of and that things were going to get better. And he was going to realize the questions he was asking were real questions and they should be addressed and, and that he's the one that's actually asking the right questions and, and uh, that it was okay to masturbate and okay to look at girls and okay yeah. to feel awkward and all of, and okay to think cuss words. It's not bad that cuss words are going through your mind. That's just part of being a person, you know, uh-huh. and to tell him that, was so emotional at the time. I mean, I started crying in bed wow. at 2 a.m. just when I couldn't sleep because it, it really touched me. And so wow. I'll always remember that moment that your podcast brought to me. And uh, I think that made me realize how much I needed a little healing because I think I had just kind of embraced the bitterness at that point. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I was happy, but I was mad at times too. And I still get mad sometimes. But your podcast has really showed me that two people can can come through it and be still understanding of other people and not so mad and bitter all the time. And I think I've become a nicer, softer person around the edges because I've been listening to you two for so long. And and so I really want to credit you with just the tremendous work that you've done. And the other thing I really like about your story, and I mentioned this earlier, is that you don't have any horrendous trauma that brought you Mm -hmm. to this point. You are a normal person that went through a normal childhood and normal college and and then yeah. wound up figuring out that it wasn't real. And, you know, sometimes I can kind of uh, feel like that's not a very interesting story. It's not, I mean, to me, it seems huge what I went through, but then when I compare it to other people's stories, it seems tiny. But right. The you and Katie talk about all the different emotions on all the different episodes and the different things you have to deal with. Um, it made me realize that, my going through what I went through was not insignificant. There's a lot of psychological issues and a lot of discoveries you make. Some of them absolutely fantastic that I got to listen to you and Katie go through. And I I heard your progression, you know, as you went through that year of podcasts and to hear your attitudes change. And I just enjoyed it so much. It's been a real source of, of some healing for me. So thank you very much for putting that out there. Yeah. I, I don't even have, I don't know what to even say to that, but I, I just want to acknowledge that I, I hear that and I receive that. And that, I mean, that, that really touches me and it touches Katie a lot. And yeah, it, that means a lot hearing that. So yeah, thanks. The work you're doing is significant. It helps. Thank you. Thank you.